the cloud. Okay, so um, I'll introduce myself first. Uh, my name is Louis Weinstock, and uh, I'm a psychotherapist. And I've also been working on a project for the last two years called A Part of Me, which is creating a safe virtual space for families to grieve. And there's a digital legacy aspect to it. So I'm very, very uh, honored and grateful to have uh, Mona and Paula here, who are specialists in the uh, subject of how people connect to digital artifacts uh, uh, after someone has died. And uh, Paula, who uh, did a TEDx talk last week, <laughs> well done. Um, and she's doing a PhD at LSC, and subject is really about intentional practices of how people want to be present online after their death. And Mona, you're doing your PhD at Nottingham. Indeed. And you're particularly interested in how bereaved people connect to those unintentional uh, digital artifacts that are left behind after someone dies. Yes, that's it, yes. Great. Well, that's a good start. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I <laughs> actually thought it, would be, I thought it would be just a nice, uh, gentle <laughs> way to start the conversation without going too much in at the deep end. Mm -hmm. If we just talked about our own relationship to the digital world, like how do you relate to social media and sort of how conscious are you in your own life about this kind of stuff? Not necessarily just about what you're going to leave behind, but how are you relating to it on a day-to-day -day basis? Because there's a connection between just the day-to-day -day building up of your online presence, whether you're doing it intentionally or not, and what's going to yeah. come later. Yeah, yeah. I actually have a, a very, um, very complicated relationship with digital technologies, in a way. It, it's um, complicated. It, it's complicated, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I certainly, I'm a very... Um, I'm very inhibited when it comes to the online world and social media. I don't have a Facebook account. Um, rather, I had I didn't have a Facebook account up until March, um, when she was Paola forced, and I was forced <laughs> into do, into um, creating an account only to connect with a group of students who went to a workshop where I attended that wow. Paula was also at. But I don't have okay. a Facebook account. I don't use it. I opened Twitter. I started a Twitter account maybe a couple of years ago. And again, just because I felt like the institutionally, my university were, you know, suggesting it was a good idea. So I thought it was good to see, you know, it's good for kind of your personal reputation, your, not your personal reputation, but your um, uh, professional life, sort of promotion and promotion, that kind of thing. So for me, it was more about, I'm very, very like tentatively stepping into this digital world of putting myself out there. But that said, I found it, I, I'm a massive Twitter user in that I read a lot of tweets. I love looking at what my brother is up to on Twitter. I love following his life and what he's at because we don't we live in different places. My friends and I, like, we would communicate a lot using WhatsApp and so in private spaces. I'm a massive user. But in terms of leaving myself digitally, mm. I, I'm very, very cautious. I'm, I, would, I would say, like, even in the past, I've had pictures of me posted online and seen them and had, like, this jolt of, oh, that's weird, and feeling like this sort of alien in a strange land because everyone seems fine with that. You know, stuff yeah. is just and is that, were you, are you conscious of that because of the work that you're doing, or are you conscious of that anyway? 
I think I'm just a weirdo in general, but <laughs> no. yeah. uh, so I think it's possibly my own, my own kind of preferences anyway. But I think, yes, it is, it's certainly to do with this growing, based on what I've been reading and interacting with in my research, this growing feeling that this, what we leave and what we put out there digitally, it means something. There is a meaning attached to it. There's a significance that can go on and that we don't have any control over. We have limited control over and that sort of remains to be seen. And I think I do have this sort of brooding feeling that I don't quite want to, I don't want to have a, a kind of a player in the game because I don't know what the game is in a way, you know. Nice. That's well said. Thank you. <laughs> what about you, Paula? I'm wondering, do you remember when did WhatsApp start? Hmm. I think it became... I can't remember. Yeah. It sort of yeah. it sneaked in. Yeah, and then suddenly, it suddenly, it suddenly just watching. became absolutely central to everything. <laughs> yeah. in my experience. Yeah, yeah. Because I was going to say that I, I really feel now that that in terms of social media, I feel that it's really strongly linked to my parenting, mm. but it's also linked to me being an immigrant. Because 2013, I became a mother, and four months after, we moved to London. And the first thing I did after we moved was to open a Facebook account. And I'm not mm. very active on Facebook. I'm active-ish, I guess. Mm. I, don't, I usually share things rather than writing my own posts. But a lot of it would be related to keeping in touch with family and friends and uploading photos of my son. And, then, and WhatsApp is a lot around that too. So maintaining, I guess, long-distance relationship and that a lot of, I don't know, this, need, this sharing things mm. about my son. And also I'm thinking other things that I do, like, photographs and videos it's all there's one very cute face in all of them i mean there's not yeah. much <laughs> selfies going on unless he's in it or, mm. or or food or so it's it's i don't know a bit embarrassing to say that it's a, a lot about that and and all, also inherent to that is this idea of what i'm leaving behind with this generational thing this because as soon as he was born and it i started thinking about death it's i it's as if mm. i feel more time passing by every day is a day every week is a week that, that you feel that it's you know times don't get before that I used to it used to be hard to remember if something happened three months ago or a year ago or it was either things happened half a six months ago or they happened two years ago but it was hard yeah. and now I know if it was yeah. two months and a half ago or if what and I feel that my so having of, your having your child your son did you say yeah yeah your son just brought um, a really heightened awareness of time, time. and against yeah. the finiteness of time and yeah. that had an effect on your how you're remembering things as well i think so and also the whole yeah the, like documented thing and archiving things and yeah. sharing things online do you think, think that part of do you think that kind of documenting or chronicling stuff is is part of what's making it easier to see how long ago things were or is, is part of that sense of acute like time the temporality being more acute or is that different you know you can see something was three months ago or the text is further down the line or whatever it is mm, i'm not sure if it's what's helping me keep track of time but it, it's definitely making i don't know this feeling that things that are left behind me things that are for yeah. for me to watch later for him to watch later for someone mm. to find after right 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 yeah yeah. yeah. Like documenting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mm. I um I feel yeah. like I have to uh, make the confession within this uh, 
trio <laughs> I'm probably much worse on social media than both of you put together by the sounds of it <laughs> or, or better uh, or better as the case may be <laughs> I'm not sure so I had um, I remember when I first got on Facebook uh, many years ago and uh, kind of like just a playful thing then and then it slowly built up into a more of a, a substantial thing in my life and how I was connecting to people but I had an interesting experience this year because I went, was it this year? Yeah, March. See, my sense of time, gone. <laughs> uh, it was March. March this year, I went to a, um, a meditation retreat, Plum Village mm. in France. And it's just obviously no digital devices yeah. for a week and just not complete silence, but you're really connecting with yourself and with other people. And what I, I got more of a sense than I ever have had before of mm. the pull just, just to just pick up my phone and check yeah. things. It's just such a pull. And so yeah. actually for, for several months after, um, I just didn't um, go uh, on Facebook at all. I was completely off it. And it's only mm. recently because I've been aware of the need to communicate with people about the apartment yeah. project mainly that I've yeah, done back right. on. and it's taken yeah. me about a week to pretty much almost fall back into the habits before of just sometimes just spending minutes or just what however long it is it's usually too long just scrolling through stuff yeah that yeah. just I uh, just doesn't feel nourishing to me yeah there is some nourishing stuff on it but anyway so that's my uh, that's my uh, confession yeah yeah that's I can absolutely imagine that it's such a it's such a draw isn't it and you sort of do it unthinkingly and you just it's like mm. muscle memory muscle memory almost picking up your phone and just scrolling it's totally it's totally a, just a hook yeah yes. it's an absolute hook yeah so um so can I actually get uh, you guys now just to talk a little bit about what attracted you to doing the specific work that you're doing maybe Mona you could start what was it that brought you to do this uh, very, it's a fairly niche subject, I think it's fair mm. to say. Yeah. Um, well, I think I've been, I've been thinking about uh, sort of what can be left digitally and what that might mean, and, but not particularly related to death. Um, and then back in 2009, my neighbour's mum died. And about a year later, I remember I Googled her name to try to find the exact date of her death. Um, and in so doing, I found um, a Twitter page, her Twitter page. I found uh, videos featuring her. I found comments about her on a teacher rating website. I found just other um, uh, mentions of her name in digital spaces, just sort of bits and pieces of her everywhere. And then I talked to her um, daughters about it and they said, oh yeah, we have these text messages from her. We have all these emails. And, and they're talking about this sort of like, um, dispersed person who was sort of in all these different places who they were variantly re interacting with and it was important for some of them and not for others and I was thinking okay this is really interesting what is this like for people and um, as, I guess going forward as we're getting more entangled with the digital and we're becoming we're doing more and more digitally that sort of context back in 2010 or whatever it was is becoming more and more acute and so it got me to thinking you know we're as digital citizens and so the sort of context the three of us have just described is this digital world where we're sort of constantly involved and on our phones and when we're doing that we're constantly putting out stuff digital stuff that can exist after a death and I don't mean like 
the debt, I don't mean like uh, loved ones accessing the accounts of their loved ones. I mean, just the texts and posts and tweets yeah. and emails and videos and photos that we're just all putting out all of the time. And what that stuff, what happens to it, how people, how bereaved people use it and what significance, if any, is attached to it after death. And that's what sort of got me into it. Mm. And can you uh, just uh, summarize uh, yeah. for anyone who's watching or listening, what mm. uh, the specifics of your research project at the moment are? Right. Um, so right now I'm in my second year, um, coming into my third year, which is very scary. But um, so I need to have written this up in the next year. Um, but so um, right now I'm what I've been doing is interviewing uh, groups of bereaved people. So I'm interviewing six different groups of people. And these groups are, are um, oriented around six individual deaths. So six people who've died. And I'm speaking to their groups of bereaved people around those people. Um, so it's sort of like six social networks almost. Um, and I'm interviewing those people over time. So I'm getting a sense of how people not only use the digital material and their importance in the early days after a death, but sort of over the course of a year, what the development of that use and that experience is and the significance of these artifacts and material over time. Um, and so I'm doing these in, uh, repeat interviews over time and speaking to different um, people at different levels of closeness to the deceased as well and at different ages. So different people at different ages and at different closeness um, levels to the, to the person who's died they have access to different sorts of stuff and different sorts of stuff is meaningful to them. So what I'm doing um, using this kind of group approach to looking at groups is to look at the sort of ecology of the death. So what is left in a group and what different people Can I just say more because your, your, I don't know if it was your internet connection or mine, but it just went a bit unstable then. Uh, my light just flickered. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if you can, it just stood it again. So um, I should probably say okay. I've had a, a uh, electricity outage earlier so as you know but my light just flickered so I think we're all I, I, do I need to repeat stuff I said or it was know? only like the last sentence really that we missed um, oh I'm so I heard you yeah. so oh okay. did you oh <laughs> yep. maybe it's mine so maybe okay well okay. it might be mine then okay so hopefully I don't know we'll just carry maybe on repeat just for the recording yeah so it was, maybe, it was yeah. just yeah. yeah so I'm just looking at um different groups to get the sort of ecology of, of the death. So to speak to different people in, uh, who are bereaved of one person, because different people have different things, different types of digital artifacts relating to the deceased available to them. And different things are important to different people. So I wanted to get that kind of bird's eye view to look at a death and look at different people's, what's available to different people around a death digitally. Mm. Can I ask you something? Can I? Yes. Yes. I wonder if, it, as part of the interviews that you're doing, if you found, because I'm thinking when you were talking now, I was thinking that there is actually a lot, there's a lot of stuff that is left out there for people yeah. who were not necessarily very close with the deceased. So before digital media, if you were really close friends or if you, you shared more things in life, then you probably had more artifacts, maybe more photographs or maybe things. Yeah. But then it's different now because anyone can access Facebook profile and anyone can search like you were, you were saying, mm. search on Google and then you find a lot yeah. of maybe photographs and, and things that, that belonged digitally to that, to the deceased. Mm. And does it happen? I mean, did, did you come across people who weren't, who were hardly close to the deceased, mm. but because of all this richness of digital material kind of construct this new relationship or this mm. new connection mm. or... Mm. 
Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I mean, I haven't, I haven't spoken to people like that. And the reason is because the people who are in my uh, so network, they nominate each other. Okay. So th- they sort of, the individual network themselves deem who's sort of close and who's significant for me to talk to. So it wouldn't be that I would get people who are that far out. Yeah. But to be honest, um, I think what part of what's making my study interesting in, in this, in part of what's interesting for me is that these people knew um, the person who died in life yeah. And the, digit- the digital is sort of relating and intersecting with the material, with the physical. So it's not just they're knowing them in life right. is, is sort of what makes the digital stuff interesting or important or, or meaningful. To them. Yeah. Yes, whereas I'm not sure it would be so interesting or significant to them if it was just or merely or, or mostly that sort of just online interaction or online yeah, being able to, you know, just see somebody's yeah. Twitter page without having known that well or whatever. Yeah. I think yes. I think that's another PhD there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because I was just thinking that um, I, in my experience of um, you know the deaths that I've experienced in my life, I've been very aware that there is a, obviously a range of different responses, and often there are people who I've thought aren't necessarily close to that person, mm. but something in the process of the death brings up a certain level of feeling almost as though they want to be close to that person. Yeah. And then, the, I mean, you can have the obvi- the opposite uh, with people who are close who can maybe not feel as much. So it is interesting mm-hmm. the sort of the radius of connection around yeah. that person, how people can yes. be motivated or just feel or respond in different ways. Yeah, absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, and radius is a nice way to put it as well. That yeah, because because it, it's not just like as you say, it's not just closeness to the person or the loss. It can be a past experience of a grief that can then bring up new stuff in light of this new experience. So it's not just closeness, or you know, there are ver- many variables, I guess. Or so yeah, true. And have you have you no have you noticed anything about that in your research? The the complications around grief. Has anything like that come up? Mm. Sort of people who maybe are feeling something or they're using the digital artifacts in a certain way, but maybe you've been thinking, I wonder how much that is to do with this person and how much mm. is it to do with other previous experiences? Mm. I certainly have uh, one participant where, where they're sort of, where uh, while the person was alive, they didn't have a great amount of interaction with them. There was, there was a sort of a far away relative, but not a great amount of interaction um, online. Interaction in, in, um, in person, yes, but they're a bit older than their 50s, maybe early 60s, this person. Um, not the person who died, the person, the, the real person, the I mean, the participant. And so this person is talking about uh, being, having been quite affected by the death and wanting to sort of wanting to look at the person, the person who's died, to look at their Facebook mm. profile and wanting to go back at it in, in, in detail, but feeling like they weren't privy to that while the person was alive and therefore why should they be after a death? And that, that sort of, it's sort of looking at the sort of granularity of the relationship and whether or not it would have been warranted to do that while the person was alive and that that maps onto what should be allowed or available in death. And that that's... That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah yes. so th- this person has an awareness of 
that sort of impulse to want to get to know that person digitally, but also an awareness of is it warranted or is it justified? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Like really there's interesting. A, yeah. It's, yeah. So it's certainly there's, and probably lots more variants of that, but I guess this is early kind of exploratory research. I'm definitely finding some mm. sort of, it's, it's definitely not simple, you know? Yeah. Another PhD. Well, let's, um, Paula, let's, let's hear from your, your um, could you introduce your um, specialist subject area? Yeah. So what got me into this, I wasn't at all going to research this, but I was interested in generally communication technologies and their relationship with presence and absence. And I was also interested in how contemporary communication technologies are breaking boundaries of this whole because boundaries and categories and classifying things is something that is very central to a society and to a culture. And, and I had this sense that with contemporary technologies, we have, we see more and more blurring of boundaries between local and global, between private and, pu and public mm -hmm. and self and other and, and what's real. And, and, mm -hmm. and I was trying to find um, some empirical site where I would be able to talk about such blurring of categories and, and then I heard about this. Well, first I, I heard about Facebook profiles of um, people who committed suicide or that remained active. And I thought that's, that's a major blurring of a major yeah. boundary. Mm. And I just started exploring. And then I realized that there was a lot going on online. And then I discovered these platforms that enable to intentionally plan how one wants to be not only present, but actively present online. And then that's, there, there are several categories and, and and things that don't add up in terms of how we are used to classifying life and death and presence and absence and agency and mm. so it's not only that it's it, the presence but where the dead allowed to be and how we understand death and um, so that's what got me interested in it so what i'm doing is um, i'm researching this this idea of intentionally planning one's online active presence after your death. So I'm looking at the websites themselves, which services are out there, what kind of, how do they imagine this post-mortem online communication and what kind of communication do they encourage? Who do they think about when they encourage this kind of communication? Who do they not encourage? What kind mm. of events or what kind of, what kind of life events, what, what things are deemed important and worth mm. being yeah. active online after you die for and what is not mentioned mm. i'm also interviewing the designers to try and understand so there's how the product imagines this and then how the designers imagine and talk about it and what's their experience um, around it and then also interviewing users so these are the people who are actually creating um, these messages um, and it's been difficult so far to recruit those users mm. um, but that and that's the part that I'm mostly interested in because usually people who hear about this project all the the immediate reaction is that's so creepy why would I ever want to do that why would which I found really interesting in your email Morna that you wrote mm. that so many people imagine imagine using the Facebook or Twitter or Instagram account of someone who passed away as a means of you, you wrote the word introduce. You said mm. to introduce to an aunt or someone who passed away by mm. showing them that Instagram or that. So the idea of introducing to some digital version of this person is something that is all people are already thinking about. But yes. when you say, I'm going to have an I and digital yeah. identity after I die so that you can, that it be, mm. then it becomes creepy. But yeah. why, why is it yeah. then that it becomes creepy? And how do the people who actually engage with this, with this practice of, 
pre-creating that digital you how do they yeah. express so it's kind of yeah so that's mm. that's why i like yeah. What have you what have you understood so far about that why why some mm. people find it too creepy to imagine mm. actively planning what you're going to leave behind in terms of your digital identity and what might be the distinguishing features of people who are actually doing it and up for it I think that one major component is the experience the close encounter with death so people who have right. recently or, or have experienced bereavement and have talked about death and experienced this having and not having a relationship with someone who is no longer here mm. are a bit more able to imagine that, a bit more able to think about why would someone want to do that? Or, or it's, I mean, they, some of them might still find it creepy at first, but, but I think that that's a major factor in imagining it and also many of the designers that i spoke to that's where they started as well it, it started with an experience mm -hmm. of bereavement and then missing that person and thinking about different opportunities when they would have liked to hear from that person is when they started thinking about the service so mm -hmm. i think that's a major thing and i think that's also something i keep thinking about it when i read theory and when i when i say things like what i did at the tedx when i say that it challenges how we've been socially constructed death and the presence of the dead in modern societies mm. because all practices and places like cemeteries it's all about limiting the time form and, and space of the presence of the dead and then these practices are potentially yeah. challenge all, all, challenging all of that yeah but then when i think about the actual i mean there is all, all that all that is written about the experience of bereavement that separation is, I mean, the people who have experienced bereavement don't really experience that separation. So it's I not really, clean cut. Yeah, yeah. So I, I really feel as if there is, mm. I, I'm not, I, I, I don't know how to articulate it yet, but there is something about the, the actual experience of bereavement that is, that makes this theory very different. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's more acute. I think that's mm. one uh, major thing and I also so I, I was this is very anecdotal and I don't know if this means anything but I was I have a nephew who is 11 years old and I and he asked me what's my PhD about so I asked him his parents if it's okay because I don't <laughs> know <laughs> and so I told him very simply that so you could create messages and then you send those things after you die maybe post on Facebook and then I, and I said what do you think and he said Oh, that's cool. So when are you coming back? It was like, move on to yeah. the, I mean, yeah, yeah, why don't yeah. you interest me with something a bit more? <laughs> so I think that there's also part of the creepiness also related to how you use digital media and, mm. and, and this, yeah. That's definitely been my experience so far doing the part of me project is yeah. big, uh, just difference of opinion in terms of age, mm. uh, yeah. younger people. And I'm even just thinking, you know, almost like, 40 and under, mm. I mean, that's just very broad brush, but a bit more digitally native and then get more yeah. and more digitally native the younger they get yeah. and just more like, yeah, well, of course, spend so much time online. Yeah. Why wouldn't that just be an obvious thing that you would plan and, and think about? Yeah. And then so in a, in a part of me, I mean, in its original formulation, uh, when I was working at um, St. Joseph's Hospice and... Right. Um, I was working with families where a parent had a terminal illness often, mm. and it was like just helping them to manage that process in the best possible way to have those mm. conversations, really difficult conversations. And yeah. essentially just to try and be as open as they could be and therefore make the most of the time. Yeah. And then it just seemed obvious to me, the more people I spoke to that why uh, wouldn't 
these people, especially the younger ones who were had a terminal illness, why wouldn't they want to use something to be able to leave something behind for their kids, especially if their kids are, you know, a bit younger and won't have the same kind of memories of them. Yeah. Um, and so we had mm. we had designed, and it's not properly built yet, but there's a feature in the game, which is a treehouse. Uh, and yeah. the idea is bottles wash up on the island and it encourages an interaction between the young person and their parent mm. to actually have chats so that they can record memories together. Right. Um, so yeah. questions like ask mm. your dad to uh, record his favorite memory of you when you were really young. Mm. Those kind of things that mm. often I feel people may wish that they could have asked about or known about but just didn't either didn't yeah. think about it or just couldn't think about it yeah yeah um so I yeah think, so whether yeah. that's actually going to be a successful feature or not mm. absolutely no idea at yeah, this stage yeah. but loads of people loads of people have contacted me in the last few weeks particularly um people who were bereaved when they were younger and they yeah. particularly seem interested in the treehouse just like i wish that i would have had something like that so yeah. i feel yeah but is that if but that's like a, a fixed like that would be a memory like when say a father describing a day at the beach that he had with this child when he was young but is that just that one sort of monologue about that is it would be like just the father reciting that for the child to hear later almost like what Paula's talking about is it well, that's the basic idea. I mean, yes. it could happen in so many different ways. What are you thinking? Right. Uh, I was just wondering, so mm, it's sort of linking to something I've been thinking about uh, based on uh, organising my mind for this conversation and kind of creating links between what Paula's doing and what I'm doing, um, which is about the potential significance for bereaved people of being able to access stuff like what you've just described after a death or what Paula's described even. Um, the sorts of services, maybe it doesn't apply to all of the sorts of services that Paula's talking about, but being able to access, say, a message from a loved one after, after a death. Um, because my thinking is that based on sort of the, speak, the people I've been speaking to for my research, um, in the early days after a death, in the sort of months and even years after a death, the sort of digital material is something that they go back to quite a lot. They, 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 they share it, they return to it. They have little rituals around it where they watch the video at night, you know, watch a video where the loved one is speaking to them, for example. Um, and then, and that's hugely important. It's, as you can imagine, it's um, this all encompassing feeling of importance around this thing. And then over time, it seems to sort of peter out a little bit. And the reason, there are many reasons, but one of the main kind of patterns of reasons that I'm coming across is that people talk about this content as being static, even though mm. it seems live. And even though in the early days, it's like, oh my God, it's like she's talking to me. Oh my God, it's like I'm, I could be having a Skype conversation with her if I just forget for a second that she's, she's dead, you know. But over time, there's they are keenly aware that the person has died. And that information, even though seeming quite vital, and vibrant in early days becomes static becomes like a memory mm. in their in their head you know and I'm thinking like 
the services that Paola is talking about or the, the ones that you've um, I've, I've seen you present about and the ones that, um, is there like an umbrella term? So digital afterlife services or something? Um, Transcendence yeah, no. industry. Yeah. Amanda Transcend- Lager, oh. calls them. Oh, <laughs> what is it? The trans- transcendent industry. There's one of the one. There's another researcher who calls it transcendence industry. I'm not sure. I haven't decided yet, but I guess it's a good. Term yeah. To think yeah, about. It's, yeah. It's great. Definitely it's a good also, one to think about. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the name of a movie as well. Like it's great. Um, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, so with these different services. I'm trying to find one that I think doesn't doesn't become static at a certain point, you know, that actually yeah, yeah. generates that actually generates new content. Because I think for me, what I'm finding when I'm speaking to people is it's it's being able to sort of relive the relationship and invoke that person gone, but not create new things. And yeah. what is what can be generated is based on something that is fixed. Well, what I think I'm interested in, and probably this has come through in your research a bit, Mona. I mean, obviously, with my background, I'm primarily interested in what will support the grieving process. Mm. Um, yeah. And what that means is a complicated question in itself. It doesn't mean, mm. uh, and I'm always keen to say this, that you're going to, within a couple of weeks, because you've got a, a legacy that you can revert back to, you're just going to be happy and skipping off into mm. the horizon. Yeah. But somehow it's about, and I'm really interested in this term. I'm very grateful for it, absence and presence mm-hmm. or like honoring the attachment and also letting go. And yeah. the balance between those two things I feel is like fundamental to a grieving process. Mm-hmm. So I guess that also relates back to what you're saying in a way, Mona, because um, you know, there can weird attachments Weird isn't the right word, but attachments to objects or digital artifacts can form, but mm. but often in the same way that even without the digital, uh, a complicated grief can include an attachment to an aspect of that person that you can become really fixated on yeah, and that yeah. you can't let go of. Mm. And that is what really causes people to suffer. And one mm. of the things that causes people to suffer. So I really uh, love the idea of being able to evolve with that person's memory, both the memory of them that you have in your head and the memory mm. that they have online. I think that's mm. a great idea. Mm, yeah. Mm. I quite like the, the that idea that it's, we, even with all our technological advances that we're, it's sort of, it's just sort of all of these different advances that we're talking about, different sort of media to, to carry the dead and to bring them into the present in different ways. But that it's certainly what I'm finding in my research. And I think it's kind of a comfort in a way is that they're all different ways of sort of supporting or supplementing the, the our, our own kind of ongoing and shared um, meanings and the, the shared memories of the person. And so yes. like the, we we don't kind of put the dead behind us and get over it we carry them forward into our ongoing lives we we think about them we talk about them and Mm -hmm. that can happen until the day we die and that i love that idea that it's even though this digital stuff seems so weird and kind of out there in lots of ways that it's sort of just it seems to be breeding into sort of traditional memory practices anyway and sort of the ways that we remember the dead and the ways we the ways we go about creating Mm -hmm. these narratives around our dead Mm -hmm. and i think that in this context sorry 
I think that Your in this turn. context, the, <laughs> the, that there is something in the, the services that I'm researching that might be disturbing because when you create, mm. so the artificial intelligence ones is something different, but the ones where you create, pre-create messages, yeah. you make a lot of assumptions about the future. And if you create yeah. a message, a message that is to be sent 50 years after you die, Hmm. I don't know. I can I can imagine, for instance, someone receiving this "Happy Birthday" for your seventieth birthday, and then going, "Was that always this boring?" Or I don't know. To because over the years, as you say, the memory being disappointed. Yeah, because yeah. the memory evolves, or, or, you, yeah. or you develop some kind of narrative about that person, yeah. and then you suddenly get this new mm. message that this person created for you, but it's mm. very different from how you've come to remember to remember them by now or or the place that you want to give them by now or not yes. or maybe it's yes. it's wonderful yes. and but that's something that is yeah mm. possible well there's it's interesting mm. because in the research around what what works uh, and i really don't like that term but in terms of like mm. grief work um a big piece of research and evidence is around remembering uh, and telling stories about that person that include the good and the bad bits yeah so it's articulating a, a balanced version of that yeah. person mm. um and so in a sense the disappointment might not necessarily be such a bad, a bad thing, thing if there yeah. was a way to understand it and to talk about yeah. it yeah um, yes yeah with with people yeah um, but it, it is interesting though that like in in the past, you know, here we go with the in the past, in the good old days, in, in you know, the <laughs> in, in the, the old old days. days, in the long, long ago. So, you know, we didn't have, you wouldn't have the potential to like receive a video from, from dad on your wedding day, you know, or, or whatever, uh, or on your 70th birthday. And that like, I, I think it's a really interesting point that you're making that like over the maybe 20, 30 years since he's died that we've sort of Community in the family through talking and you know looking at looking at all the maybe VHS videos and reading all letters. We sort of made this narrative about this man, including good and bad. Yeah. But that yeah. it, but that that message, if you were to receive it, might just be jarring because you might be like, oh, hang on, yeah, that, yeah, we for we forgot that or yeah. that wasn't something that we quite had in there. But I wonder is that just like, you know, an, an affliction based on what what we know memory is like maybe in time people will just it, yeah. like a digital memory like that won't be like this jarring thing interrupting kind of shared human memory you know maybe it'll just be like part of the weave of of remembering i don't know yeah i'm just thinking there are other things that change over time because in one of the interviews that i did the designer said or when or when services when websites choose what are important events and or yeah. things in your life that are important in 50 years i don't know maybe marriage won't be as important anymore I'm just yeah I don't know, just, yeah or maybe and then leaving this huge message for so it's like but what if i i, I mean I, I don't have a better example right now but values yeah. change and societies change yeah. and and things mm. can have different I don't, it not, does it doesn't necessarily a disturbance perhaps like you say but it's yeah and yeah, a really good point. No, yeah. I mean, I think you're right. Yeah, actually, in that, um, uh, is it a, a Safe Beyond is one of the one one of the services, isn't it? And I know you yeah. showed it on one of the conferences um, that you spoke yeah. at. And and I think one of the the video you showed, I remember the father it was from a father to her daughter on his on her wedding day, and the father is dead with I don't know twenty years or something. Yeah. And 
And I remember thinking, like she, he's saying to her, oh, you know, you've by now you found the man of your dreams and you're walking down the aisle. Yeah. And, and I just remember thinking like, God, he's assuming she's, you know, she's straight. She's, she's straight. She get wants married. to get married. She, yeah, you know, I mean, the, the, it was just the stacking list of things that were yeah. being assumed. So I think that for me, certainly yeah. like, yeah, it might, might sort of be shot through with kind of values and things that were just like yeah. from 50 from 50 years ago but yeah. maybe that's not I don't know yeah especially yeah. especially it feels like to me on one level as digital technology just changes and accelerates change exponentially mm. it almost feels like things about human behavior are changing at quite a not the same but almost similar rate to me like mm -hmm. things about how people connect to each other, how people express their identity, mm. so many different colors and shapes and sizes. Mm. And uh, it's so, it makes me feel like how difficult it would be to imagine and predict what, yeah. like you're saying, what, what was, what's going to be going on in, in 20 years, never mind 50 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I actually, um, I really wanted, I want to make sure that we talk and just go into this because for me, I'm, I'm per personally really interested in this, but just generally about how we remember, um, about memory and how we remember. And um, I'm not sure if I've got a specific question, but I was interested, Paola, in something that you said, not in this talk, but somewhere else I've heard you say it about with the advent of certain technologies like photography, yeah. how moments become artifacts and yeah. how that affects our way of remembering not it doesn't just affect our way of remembering things mm. but it also affects our way of being in the moment and relating yeah. to people and experiences and I went to a gig uh, the other night which I know is just an obvious classic example but I was actually <laughs> I was on the balcony so I was looking down and the yeah. finger was going up to the crowd uh, and literally every single person was recording. So I just yeah. thought, what would the experience be like for the singer? <laughs> Seeing to, all to this. See a sea of adoring fans, but all just recording her. <laughs> yeah. So weird. So weird. So weird. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. I'm not like, I don't want to go down the route of, oh, this is good and that's bad. But I'm really interested mm. in how these things affect how we relate to experiences and I don't know if there's it's not even a question but I'm just opening mm. it up mm. yeah I think it's a it definitely relates there is there is also a, an interview with Robin Williams did you see that one where he talks exactly about that about how people are mm. constantly seeing um. the world through their through their smartphones that and that he's mm. and, I don't know, so it's really funny, but he says, just, just, it's there, it's life, just experience it instead of, <laughs> yeah, but I'm not, eyes. yeah, but I'm not sure that documenting through your phone is not experiencing, or, mm. or I want to say that it's different, so I know that we, I'm probably considered, digital natives are considered anyone born between 90s like and... 90, yeah, in 98, I think, is the... Or 98 is the limit? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, I'm not I a think, digital native. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> me neither. <laughs> um, but I'm defi I definitely use technology a lot more than my parents do, and mm. my, my son is already born, is already growing up in a different reality, as are my nephews, and, and I can they're experiencing differently and they're using digital media as part of their experience. Mm. Um, 
I don't know the phones are present. It's I don't know. I need to better articulate what I'm thinking. Mm. Well, I like But what you're, definitely... you're you're saying that um, you're making the uh, sort of counterpoint in a way that it's mm. not that if you're recording something like you're at the gig, you're not necessarily yeah. not experiencing it, but you're experiencing it in a different way. Yeah. And mm. actually, to be more curious about that rather than oh, that is just weird. Yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Mm. I don't know. I think I think uh, I'm not sure. I think this is part of you know me being a big a big luddite probably, but I think part of it. I I'm not sure. I think that the sort of recording something and part of that being so built into experiences now. I think it. I think perhaps it's something to do with maybe just not. Um, experiencing or taking part so actively or sort of yeah. being present being present or something in the moment but but more um the amount of stuff like photographs and videos that is generated yeah. say so like so photograph maybe back in the 80s when i was a kid was you know gathering in together and all you know put on yeah. your nice thing and do the thing and make sure that you look you know and sort of it was a moment that you were kind of gathering together to capture and th therefore the story behind that moment was more sort of um, captured in a way because you can you can remember maybe that day because it was an important day worth taking a photo of, you know? And yeah. so it was sort of like a portal into that experience to look at that photograph. Whereas I think maybe we had this sort of, this constant barrage of, this sort of glut of information, this glut of yeah. photographs and video yeah. content, which yeah. I, think, I think the specialness of which is somewhat cheapened by the amount Yeah. And and again, bringing it back to something some some of my participants are talking about is like having this sort of universe of stuff about somebody can almost like make it insignificant because what yeah. what what is important? Yeah. What's the, what's the thing that I should go to that would most clearly capture yeah. or most most perfectly represent? Or because there's mm. so much, how do I choose? Well, that's so, a, that's a really good question. What is what is important of all the <laughs> recordings yeah. that we're all you know all to, to varying degrees trying to make yeah. and I'm also interested in one of my colleagues is sort of specializes in digital and mental health mm. and um, he's written somewhere about the will to share mm. and I'm definitely conscious of this in myself so I told you about my um, sabbatical from Facebook yes. and completely didn't think about it at all like mm. I, it took me maybe a few days but just didn't think about it at all, just getting on with my life. And then since I've been back on, just going around my day-to-day -day business, I've noted the thought patterns coming back. Ooh, I could take a picture of this. This is a beautiful mm. sunset. I mm. want to take a picture of it and I could share yeah. it. Mm. Um, yeah. And yes. all sorts of other things, not just pictures of beautiful sunsets, but all sorts of other things. So that, yeah. that is definitely a difference uh, which... I'm probably only marginally um, aware of compared to a digital native, which is definitely having some kind of an impact on how we relate to um, experiences. Yeah. And yeah, I think I, I was going, I, so. I, don't, I don't know if you got, I, I sent you an email, uh, a reply email today that I don't know if you got yeah. to read, but. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> it's, How dare you not read my hear. email that I sent 10 minutes before the <laughs> meeting, Morna? <laughs> Just but take 10 minutes or a second. <laughs> 
but I, I wrote something about that, what you said about photography, how it used to be, because it's not just the photograph, it's also the practice that makes that, that shapes your memory. Like you said, that you choose the day that is worth it. And, mm. and, and I was also thinking now when, um, when Louis were speaking that with my son, because you also, it's also, it's the practice of what you choose to document. So, yeah. I will encourage him to do the thing that will make the really funny video that is worth yeah. sending on WhatsApp yeah. and that is worth, mm. and, and probably the digital natives are probably also shaping their own practices of what is worth that, mm. yeah, that, that we're too old to understand or that we don't know yet or that we don't mm. have access to, but what is worth remembering or what makes something more worth than more, yes. more worthwhile than than something else and yes mm. so it's like mm. back to like back to incidental and intentional creation yeah. so like so like you can be incidentally going oh that's my sunset i'll take a picture of that versus like actually orchestrating situations that you know not that you can create a nice sunset but that you can yeah. make some you know make your son do something extra silly or extra cute that's worth documenting so like it's sort of shaping just the activity not just documenting yeah. it but shaping it yeah but I'm going to say something a bit challenging here because what, uh, and I often think about this anyway, but in what is intentional and what isn't intentional and what are motivations? Because I've been rereading this book uh, recently, which I brought here just to uh, show because I thought it'd be relevant to the um, conversation. But basically what he reminded me of in the start of this book, because uh, he's talking about neuroscience and neuroplasticity and how our brains get wired by the thing, the neurons that wire together, fire together, our brains get wired by mm -hmm. the things that we do yes. repeatedly every yes. day. So if yeah. you're, let's just say the extreme example, mm. uh, and there's an image of this, which I've used in some talks of them before, but you are born and you have one of those, there's these um, Fisher pad activity seats for babies, which yeah. has a, an iPad holder in it. Yeah. Um, so let's just say that you, from the minute <laughs> you're born, that is your experience and like we know like very young mm. children can learn to navigate and swipe and do all these yeah. things yeah yeah they're immersed in that world so therefore mm. it is shaping uh their brains and so to some mm. extent they're being shaped by the technology and of course they are shaping it as well and it's mm. both of those sides are true i think mm. yeah yeah yeah, I think partly, partly this this whole conversation is it needs to be put in the context of us being people who went from analog to digital. You know, like yeah. we're people who, for whom this experience or these things are in essence sort of creepy and sort of intrusive and sort of don't feel they feel like they were kind of intruding on real life in some ways. But I think, as you yeah. as you you know, like it's the I think for the natives or whatever the term you want to use is this is just life and it's not digital or, or otherwise it's just, and I yeah. think, I think really that's something that is, I forget a lot when I'm doing my research is that I'm just, I'm very much um, part of a certain generation. And I think we, we, there's a lot of very, very kind of root um, kind of parts of this yeah. experience that I just can't understand. And I just can't, yeah. I can't quite square with my experience. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Um, do you, uh, this is like more to Paola and it's a note that I made from watching something that you uh, did, but 
you were talking about something to do with when the telegraph arrived and the impact yeah. that had and some connection between that and spiritualism. And it was only a short film that mm. I saw, but I was like, wow, you have to tell it's me more so, about that. <laughs> Intriguing. It's really interesting. So I have this book. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Haunted oh, media. Yes. Oh, yes. Do you know it? <laughs> no. So it's really good. It's, it's, it's about this idea of presence and absence and how all electronic media have had have repeatedly triggered these fantasies about the presence mm. of the dead and being able to use mm -hmm. the technology of the time to communicate with the dead. And the thing with the telegraph is fascinating because it was the first, generally I love reading all the, you know, that historical time where, where electricity became a thing and everyone were enchanted by electricity yeah. and, and what can be done with this new power, this new force mm. that was doing all these things. And, and it was a mystery and, and, and there was, and I think enchantment is a very, accurate word mm. to, des to describe this and so at around the same time the telegraph appeared so it was used for the first time in 1844 and i think those they are the years maybe two or three after is when modern spiritualism started became a really big movement mm. and the discourse around the uh, around spiritualism and what spiritualism is and how spiritualism works was very much um based on the discourse of the telegraph on, on the same even the same terms of channels for communication and, and absent some um, mind that is absent at a distance and and then there was a lot of uh there are some amazing photographs here about the celestial telegraph celestial mm, is that how you yes, say it celestial, yeah. so there, there were many scientists who were really fascinated with this possibility because electricity wow. was this wondrous thing <sighs> and if they could only create a better machine a better technology then they would finally be able to to break that ultimate barrier and and communicate with the world of the dead and then there are mm. attempts oh where are those photographs so celestial telegraph, meaning like telegraph to heaven kind of thing, or telegraph yes. to the after, yes. Yeah. Mm. And then there are well, stories. They, they, yeah. Sorry, go on. No, just, Carry I don't on. remember what I read that one, but about, because it was a, a big fear about bury, burying people before they actually die. Right. So, or, or this fear that someone would be buried and then suddenly wake up. So they would bury mm. them with some... Oh apparatus that would enable to send <laughs> morse code in case or ring mm. a bell or, or i don't remember but this whole the, the, this wow. idea that so you could communicate the equivalent distance. would be being buried with your smartphone wouldn't it <laughs> some yeah. are some are some are yes. have you come across that yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. some are i have as well yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow. or as in yeah. i know people yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> this um just to say on your point paula because i think it's so fascinating uh, the language that we uh, use and how it just uh, parallels across different genres. Mm. And uh, in that, uh, Nicholas Carbuck as well, he reminded me that um, uh, uh, when the sort of the earlier days of neuroscience, uh -huh. around the 50s and 60s, when the first computers were coming into place, mm. and computers were hardwired and brains were hardwired. Mm, yeah. And the two mm. metaphors fed into each other. They were like mutually reinforcing systems of understanding. Yes, yes, and now, yes. now we talk about neural networks. Yeah. Mm, yes, yes. And Carolyn Marvin in her book, When mm. All Technologies Were New, writes about that also in about electricity and how currents of mind and, and streams mm. of thoughts are also emerging around the time of electricity and currents and mm. it's really interesting how you mm. technology becomes part of how you imagine and how you understand 
the world, yes. everything. Yes. There's also which really direction nice, does that happen in? Sorry, go on, Mona. Mm, no, I was just thinking, yeah, yeah, I was thinking there's also really nice um, uh, work on uh, the power of metaphor in, in talking about uh, technological platforms. Yeah. They're, they're platforms that are devoid of responsibility, that they are like a train platform that you just get off. You know, the platform, a train platform isn't responsible for what the, um, you know, the travellers uh, on the train do. You know, so this idea that using this, yeah. the, met the metaphor of a platform suggests that the technologies that we, we use are just conduits for behavior. But yet they're, as, as we've been saying, they, they allow and curtail certain things and yeah. make, you know, suggest some things are important and some things aren't. And are, they're very much shaping sort of the way that we interact and, are, you know, created yeah. identities and all these different things. But they, it's again about that use of the metaphor as carrying yeah. over and being being used really liberally and people kind of forgetting that these this whole system of uh, networks and uh, uh, architecture beneath yeah. these beneath these platforms these kind of irresponsible platforms in a way you know yeah mm. you made me think talking about a platform the metaphor and, and mm. standing and waiting for a train <laughs> um, but if you were a, an alien <laughs> landing from whatever planet onto yeah. earth you would need someone to tell you where the platform was and how to know which was the right train and how, how to get on it and yes. this is my very uh <laughs> random tangent to, to think about Go on. <laughs> just coming coming back to um like thinking about the next generation and thinking about children and education and and mm. uh, what because ultimately they do find their own ways to use these technologies. But ultimately I do think the adults um, have a responsibility to help them to know how to get on the train or how to get yeah. on the right train or how to ride it properly. <laughs> and um, uh, I think, I don't know if this is uh, helpful specifically thinking about what you're going to leave behind, but it's a, it's a very similar conversation. Just thinking about what you are leaving online and your digital presence, it's part and parcel of the same thing, isn't it? Mm. And I feel as much as we need as adults to be conscious of that, um, children need to be thinking about yeah. that even more mm. because they're using it even more, and therefore yeah. they're leaving more of a presence yes. online. Yes, 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 and I think often. Um, often I think we make the mistake of thinking because they're natives and they're on things and they know how to use them, that in some way they have some sort of understanding of the moral or ethical um, implications yeah. of things, you know, because they think, oh yeah, they're, you know, they're in some way sort of, they're fluent in this thing that we're, that we're sort of, you know, outsiders. And that in, in so doing, we can sort of not, we can assume that they kind of know best in a way, but still they're yeah. just kids. They're just kids yeah. and they don't have a moral compass. They don't have an ethical compass. They don't think about these things in the broad, you know? So I think there's a sort of a problem, a little issue I think always that prop crops up with assuming that they kind of know best because they are these natives and I'm not sure. So what um, would be, I'm going to ask you both, what would be like a lesson that you would, or something you'd really want to share and teach and encourage a, a class? or a single young person about this issue? Hmm. I think specifically in this context, one thing that I would really like to unpack is this fear of technology and of the digital, this mm. like, oh, parents being terrified of, it's this, yeah. it's either, 
you know, let them do because they know best or keep them away from television and from computers yeah. and from screens and from everything because it's all evil. And, and it's where mm. there is a lot. I, I would say that there's room and need for more reflexivity and, 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 and doing maybe technology together. And Definitely. A hundred percent agree. Mm. One of the things I've found the most helpful working, um, doing therapy work with uh, young people many of whom have different issues with uh, technology, um, is what often happens is the parents will be really stressed out because they won't come off their games and they're not getting enough sleep and mm. uh, therefore they're grumpy and they're not doing what they're supposed to and they're not doing as well at school and all this stuff. And then when I inquire, almost always the, parent, the, the young person went on their own will say, well, my mum and dad are just on their phones and, and laptops yeah. all the time. So why yeah. can't I be? Yeah. But then also what I find the most helpful thing has been just to be curious alongside the young person about yeah. how, it's going to sound cliched as a therapist, but how does it actually make you feel when, for example, one young person recently, he plays a lot of games online and he's connecting with hundreds of different people at, at, in one time and he, he described to me really clearly he said when I come off within a, just a few minutes I have this massive deep sinking feeling of absolute loneliness and mm -hmm. I just don't understand why because I've just been connecting with all these different people and mm -hmm. so that was just a good opportunity to explore about connection and what mm -hmm. kind of connections can leave us feeling nourished and which ones yeah. leave us feeling a bit more empty and it wasn't you know, obviously I'm in a particular position because I'm a therapist and not a parent. Mm. It's different as a parent, but mm. I feel those kind of conversations, I think that's really what you're saying, uh, Paula, isn't it? Just to have a more balanced conversation rather than mm. let them do whatever they want to do yeah. or... Or don't let them do anything. Bad. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I mean, I, I, mm. I guess I, I don't feel um, quite qualified to... Um, to comment in, in that I'm not a parent either. So I feel like I, you know, I'm not sort of interacting with that, that kind of context so much with, you know, with kids and, and making those decisions as a parent. But I think I would definitely chime with what you're saying, Louis, about the importance of having that, having that uh, open communication about the use of technologies. And I guess using these technologies together in a way to sort of, to sort of model how, how adults and how people might use these technologies to not just sort of shunt kids off and assume that they know how to use them because they're younger. And I think part of something that my research, again, not based on with, with children particularly, is part of what's important, and I've said this a little bit before, about the digital material that's left behind relating to the people I've been speaking to, is, is about their connection to human connection. So how... Mm their how a whatsapp conversation can allow one to think about and relive somebody's real life flesh and blood uh, relationship with somebody else and so yeah. that it's so just to remember to to have have life have flesh and blood time with people <laughs> you know have like in-person conversation as well as whatsapp conversation yeah. just to sort of i know it's, it seems a really small point but i think it's sort of where there's a and this eliding of sort of WhatsApp conversation or SMS or whatever it is, digital conversation with actual being with people. And there's a difference. And I think 
I think I would say just make sure that you don't sort of disappear into this just communicating in this in digital ways and maybe having this sort of loneliness or whatever it is that can that can um, arise yeah. afterwards. But I, I would say that that sort of flesh and blood one to one human communication is is important and to to make sure that you nourish that part of yourself and your relationships. Yeah, and uh, it, it's, it's really such a good message and, and well said. And what I've become more aware of in the last um, couple of years is a lot of good science now about human psychology, human physiology, and human attachment, and mm. how we actually depend on, because of our evolutionary history, we depend on real human connections to mm -hmm. feel certain feelings which we could ascribe to well-being so to like yeah. we regulate each other yeah. through touch through mm. sound of voice uh mm. through being able to see people but actually see people and see the mm. subtleties of the movement in their face mm. and um so it doesn't surprise me when a young person says that he has these amazing loads of connection chatting to everyone chat here chat there chat there and then yeah. as soon as he comes off he feels overwhelmingly lonely it doesn't mm. you know it makes sense yeah absolutely and i mm. i really want to because i think we're going to have to finish soon but mm. we could go on for a while but the one there's one subject here which we haven't really gone into which i think was it did you mention i can't remember who mentioned it but about nostalgia oh i and did yeah just i pricked up on that because um I don't know. I don't know, but it feels like it's um, a really interesting aspect of what we're talking about in terms of um, how people relate to memories just in general. Yeah. So maybe mm. just if you could just explain what your particular interest was in that parlor. Yeah, it wasn't very clear, but I was just thinking because Morna wrote about um, memory and memory becoming something that you you said outsourced to digital technology right yeah and and i was thinking mm. yes it's remembering is part of what we what we do it's part of the action that we do through things like facebook and then i thought about the facebook feature you know when they tell you you posted this image of you three months ago or three years ago or share it again with your friends and this so this mm. remembering this nostalgia becomes it's it's you're encouraged to use it as a practice now you're encouraged to use it as a mm. practice because it got many likes before and maybe it's another opportunity to get more likes and then send you know you, and then get um, yes. commercials and so it's not yes. i mean i don't think it's just because it's fun to remember but mm. but it's mm. it becomes a thing i don't know if it is nostalgia or is it just also for the person doing it about the is it the nostalgia about the thing or is it the nostalgia about the likes the, the thing i mean if i posted yeah. a photo of mm. going somewhere and it was and but also uh. think about other i think about like uh medman i didn't see it but there i don't think there's a lot of contemporary texts that are about depicting at different times and making it something about nostalgia and remembering and yeah yeah that's that's all i have <laughs> it's mm. very mm. What I yeah. mean, I, I kind of, what I realized reading that is I didn't have a very good enough sort of um, uh, like dictionary definition of nostalgia, but, <laughs> but yeah. I have an experiential sense of what it means to me, which is 
And I, and as I was listening to your talk, I'm thinking for me, nostalgia is there's a certain like warmth and mm. a, there can be a sadness to it. And also something about wistfulness. Those are the kind of mm. emotional words that come to me when I think about nostalgia. And yeah. I don't think that I get that when I'm on Facebook and that picture pops up. Yeah. I think it's something to do with like, again, intentionality or what, whatever I mean by that. But the fact that it's generated by, it's yeah. not you, it's not you being nostalgic. It's, it's a system that says this happened three years ago, a system, a platform um, that can say, you know, on this day, three years ago, this happened, or it's, it uses the data available to it to tell you what you should be nostalgic about. And, and maybe, so maybe true. perhaps, maybe that's the yeah. reason why that warmth or wistfulness or whatever isn't connected to it. Cause you mm. haven't gone, haven't, you know, picked like a photograph from under a bed and thought, ah, oh, yeah, that thing that happened, when was that? Yeah. And, you know, it's sort of that, yeah. that heart connection is, is less front and center. It's more of a like technological, do you remember this thing? I don't know. If... No, absolutely. A hundred percent. When you were speaking, I literally had a slight like goosebumps feeling because I was thinking of times when, when I sometimes have gone home to my parents and every now and then I'll just go into the uh, attic and pull down like a box of photographs. Mm. And I just find that such a wonderful thing to do, to mm. go through old photos. And, but I find it, I, um, it has a similar feeling on my own, but doing it with other people, like yeah. to do it with my sisters and where you can share those memories and have a laugh and sometimes have yeah. a cry. Yeah. is um, that is what I feel maybe is would represent most clearly nostalgia in a way to me. Mm. And so what you're saying about the machine or the platform telling you what is worth remembering just mm. takes yeah. all of that out, doesn't it? Mm. But the thing is, so to, I can, sometimes I get friends, uh, um, if I, I uploaded photos of my son from three years ago when he was a baby and it was his first winter, first mm. time he saw snow and something that was a, a major event and then I get mm. this Facebook reminder you uploaded this three years ago and I go wow look at him I, I get all those yeah. it does yeah. do okay. all those feelings mm. and then I might reshare because then my family can reset or I might not but I do have mm. but then the question becomes so because the algorithm would recommend something for me to be nostalgic about not necessarily based on my son's first snow but maybe yes. maybe based on how many likes that photo got or maybe right. i don't know i don't know what's the algorithm yeah. mm. Um, mm. so to have more it would be um worthwhile as a designer to consider that question mm. uh wouldn't it in terms of what would um you know what would be important and for you to have some control over it yeah. What are the memories that ultimately you want to be reminded of? And then that also is interesting in terms of yeah. how you might connect to the digital afterlife mm. of mm. a person who you love, who's no longer here. Yeah. Mm. 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 But then it's maybe that, like, I think Paula said something about it at the start of this nostalgia chat, but like, perhaps then it becomes about like, if some, if uh, Facebook. Facebook tells you this picture, you, you posted this three years ago, whatever. Maybe it becomes like nostalgia for the posting of the photograph rather than the taking of the photograph yeah. or yeah. or the likes that it got rather than the photograph, you know? 
So like, oh, so maybe, you know, your parents and your siblings yeah. and, your, and your friends commented and liked it. So maybe it's nostalgia for that moment of in digital interaction or that window of it, digital interaction rather yeah. than the photograph. So yeah. maybe there's an added element of, yeah, it's there's more to it than perhaps a photograph could have because that's so there, there know, are two just, moments maybe yeah yeah or maybe maybe, maybe many moments if it's reposted yeah. again and yeah I don't know. Mm, that is interesting yeah um mm. i think what would be nice if it's okay with you guys um because we could talk about all of this obviously and i've got so many more notes that we haven't really gone into <laughs> but uh hopefully we could do this again sometime soon but mm. i thought maybe it'd be a nice idea just to finish with like um uh what you either what's the weirdest thing that you've come across in your research and but maybe that's more for you Paola yeah connected to, that, <laughs> connected to that is what do you imagine is going to be happening in I don't know 50 years time uh, what do you think might change both in terms of technology and how people think about their digital afterlife and how people might connect to that digital afterlife intentional or not mm. Mm. I think uh, yeah I think I might be sort of maybe reiterating something I've said a while ago but I mean I think I like to think of all of the memory making practices and the digital like digital leavings of lives as being part of just a, a continuum of, of people doing these sorts of things so I think maybe in time, whatever the technological affordances and whatever it is that we can do, maybe we can um, print synthetic bodies into which we can download personalities, the personalities of the dead. But I have this sort of feeling, perhaps based also in my, in my being very uh, um, inhibited when it comes to technological life, but my feeling is that, is that like, okay, so the Black Mirror episode of uh, yeah. the Be Right Back, the, that episode. I love the end of that where, where this like, synthetic body that's supposed to contain all of this woman's husband and acts like him, mannerisms like him, all of his um, particularities and defining characteristics are there, but this is not enough. And she says, you know, you're just ripples of this person. You're, yeah. you're not him. You can't be him. And I think for me, it's I love that idea that, you know, life is important and significant because it is finite and because because at some point there is an end to the relationship and that can be looked back on and that sort of having access to something that repeats or rejuvenates that is maybe good for a while and may help the process of grieving or whatever it is but in the end people die and we have to sort of do something with our ongoing experiences and lives and bring them forward with us in whatever way makes sense to us yeah and I don't know again I'll probably be you know there'll probably be some amazing machine that is able to print out people who knows but I don't know I think that's that's my sense is that we will do what humans have always done just in light of whatever technological affordances are there I think mm. nice thank you Mona how about you, Paula? I think I have something to say in this context, so then I think I might try to challenge that. Mm -hmm. But I think oh, so. One good. of the <laughs> a, a very very Five. interesting yes no a very interesting um, <laughs> movement I would call them that I came across 
is they call themselves uh, the Terrasem movement. Oh, Do yes. You know them? Do the the Eternine people are, are there? Oh no, they're no. So what do they do? They they do life oh, knot. They, oh yes, they do life knot. That's it. Yes. So so life knot is is the website, but it's a product of this larger yes. movement, and yes. they're and they're religious. It's a religious movement. They have like they have rituals. They have they call it a they have a seder like the Jewish seder, but it's a seder about. Uh, life I don't, I don't remember but one of the things one of the their projects mm. is also so they're there i think they they define themselves as post-humanists mm-hmm. post-humanists mm-hmm. and uh and they talk about downloading uploading your mind to a computer and then when technology creates the right hardware like you said maybe printing people then download mine and then we'll have all these um they have a term for this kind of uh uh Never mind for the, this kind of beings that are that are technological and not based on flash, flash, mm. however you say it. Yes, yes. And one of their projects is that they already have a museum to promote tolerance towards mm. these <laughs> beings, <laughs> so that wow. that any every life is a life, and someone and, be, and there are different races and different mm. skin colors, and some instead of having flash have electronic wiring. Yeah. So I think that's one of the most fascinating things that I came across. Mm. But in wow. challenging what you were saying about this real life connection and real bodies and yeah, real because that's what they teach us to do like to do this when you talk yes. about the real. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so because first I was thinking about the digital and, and people who are autistic, for instance, where they find communication and and reading those nonverbal signals is something very difficult to do so actually mm-hmm. digital communication could be something that makes social interaction more accessible to that kind of put to people with that kind of impairment okay and then i was thinking people like oh was it stephen hawking is his name the mm-hmm. scientist yeah so someone like that with with with, with such an illness if you could mm. print for him a body and he could operate that body with his mind mm. would you still think that it's a different that it's not as good as being present mm. and then mm. maybe the question becomes so this is the, the absence presence thing because yeah. is it would we feel differently because the actual reference to which mm. this body is a representation mm. is present mm. it does does that make the difference mm. or or it's just be you know just knowing that it exists and just once you're okay with communicating mm. with such printed bodies for Stephen yeah. Hawking's yeah you can start communicating with printed bodies for mm. I, I think the difference I think the difference yeah. lies in whether or not you're looking for if I wanted to teach kids in a hundred years what Stephen Hawking yeah. is like or, or what um um whatever Barack Obama or whoever what yeah. that, what that person was like yeah um that that perhaps being able to um rejuvenate that person somewhere or have have a body with them in it with a yeah. with something uh a piece of software that takes the corpus of everything they've ever said and can speak in uh, with the person's mannerisms and yeah. with things in in line of things they've said and and extemporize so like have new permutations of things that they said based on passing that, they, that they've said then yeah. that's something that's like for educational purposes or for yeah. even just um, having access to past times or whatever. But I think in terms of actually 
and, and, and I think for that, the referent doesn't need to be there. For that, it's okay. almost like you have like a really, yeah. really, it's like having a really, really clever way yeah. of connecting with someone. Okay. So, but I think if you're talking about actually, uh, if you're grieving and if you're, if you're trying to rejuvenate or, or sort of be with the person yeah. who has died in a real way, someone that you had a close connection with, I think yeah. the fact that the referent is dead in that way and that you're, people are keenly aware that the person is dead. I think in, in the absence of the referent, yeah. no, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm, I'm confident in saying no amount of technology, but like yeah. it's when that, that kind of referent is static and the person knows that and that's, yeah. they're so keenly aware of that. I think the fact that they know that anything that comes from that, any extemporization, any permutation is computational. Limited. Is, yeah. is limited. It is based, yeah. it's static. It is static. Yeah. Even though it can look and feel amazing, but the referent is gone. Therefore, there are new, no, no new memories. There are no new there's no new relational stuff happening, yeah. really. I don't know. But then, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Well, I can um, share a very personal experience uh, to give some context to this, mm. which is a friend uh, of mine. It's my uh, wife's first cousin was diagnosed with motor neuron disease. I think oh, it was gosh. two years ago. Mm. And um, sadly, unlike Stephen Hawking, he um, only survived, I think, a year and a bit. So it was a very rapid deterioration. Mm. But um, what is relevant here is how people related to him as he changed. So mm. he became less like the person that people remembered him uh, on one mm. level, certainly mm. physically, mm. and certainly in his ability to communicate, partly in how he looked, and, you, and um, so different people relate to him in different ways. And some people, often the people who are really close to him, com comforted themselves by saying, maybe this was more after he died, but they comforted themselves by saying, we want to remember him how he was yeah. and not how he ended up. Yeah. Yeah. So mm. I'm only sharing mm. that now because mm. it's, it's also just a question about who is the person inside there? Mm. Who's the real person inside yeah. there that we think that we're relating to? Mm. And we definitely don't have time to answer that now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we should probably... I think we should uh, uh, wrap it up there. It's been uh, really uh, so fascinating. A pleasure to mm. chat with Super. you both. And yeah, yeah, I hope we can yeah. uh, do it again at some point uh, yeah. in the future. That would be wonderful. Thank you. I loved it. Yeah, it was so fun. Thank you. Me too. Yeah. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Thank you, so you much. both. Bye. Bye. Bye.